Amen. Well, if you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we are going to be reading back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 14 today. However, for context's sake, I would like to read all the way down uh, to verse 17. That's the end of the chapter. Let's read together, beginning in verse 12. This is what the Word of God says. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened to me for, opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's, pl- let's pray one more time. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the glorious, glorious privilege of having about us an aroma that speaks of Christ. And Father, help us to understand first and foremost, our utter insufficiency for these things. And help us to understand, Lord, that it's only by Your grace that we are made adequate. It's only by Your grace, Lord, that we can live this Christian life and that we can testify to the great truths of the gospel, whether it is, as Paul says, death to death or life to life. Father, thank You that we are nevertheless by virtue of our union with Christ, an aroma of Him to Your glory. And I pray, Father, that You would help us in this passage of Scripture to discern, Lord, both the trials and the triumphs of the gospel and of the ministry of the gospel. So, Father, I pray for Your help. And I also pray for Your people today that You would please encourage their hearts, Lord, that You would send, and by the power of Your Spirit, Lord, that You would descend upon this place and encourage our downcast hearts, our confused minds, our complicated lives. Father, we so desperately need for You to be here among us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to teach us. We pray, Lord, have your way with us today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that is really the subject that I'm going to be tackling today. It is what I've entitled the the trials and the triumph of the gospel. Because that's really what's contained here, especially kind of putting a stop at verse 14. As soon as I started surveying verses 15 to 17, I realized that it was absolutely hopeless for me to put all of that into one sermon. So I was pacing myself and 
trying to preach a sermon that was more realistic with the content. But the reason why I also want to sort of draw special attention to verses 12 and 13 is because they are so significant to the letter. They are so significant to the letter. Because verses 12 and 13 signal for us a major shift in the context. That is that because of this, what many call a transitional passage, the Apostle Paul is now going to begin going in a completely different direction. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to take us in a different direction all the way down to chapter 7. Well, he, he will not talk about his itinerary anymore until he gets to chapter 7, verse 5. That's right. From verse 14 all the way to chapter 7, verse 5, the Apostle Paul will now shift his focus to talk about not so much his itinerary or his travel plans or why he changed his travel plans as we've seen, but he's going to focus on the nature of his ministry, the extent of his apostolic authority, and what it means to be a new covenant minister of the gospel. So a lot of great, grand, glorious truths coming in that whole section of this epistle. But here, he sort of gives the Corinthians one last uh, opportunity to understand something of the circumstances surrounding his itinerary, and he talks about what I've entitled for our first point, the trials of the gospel. The trials of the gospel. Let's read once more verses 12 and 13. He says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So the very first thing that you see here about the ministry is that it is very complex in and of itself. And the reason why we need to talk about gospel ministry is I want to draw your attention to that little phrase there, for the gospel of Christ. That is the purpose clause that reveals to us why it is he went to Troas. As with every other city that the Apostle Paul visited, the reason he was there was not to take a vacation. Troas is a beautiful place, but he's not there on a vacation. He's there for the gospel. That means when it, whenever you see language like that in your Bible for the gospel in this context, that's code, if you would, for furthering the gospel, spreading the gospel, preaching the gospel, missionarily, is that a word? Missionarily? Advancing the gospel. That's all that Paul's life is about, isn't it? From beginning to end, it is one huge thrust of the gospel. That's what his whole life was consumed by. But as we've already seen, gospel ministry is quite complex, is it not? Especially when you think in terms of trials and triumph. Especially as you think of affliction and joy. It is not one or the other. And that's what I want to sort of belabor with you today. That ministry, and by extension, brothers and sisters, the entirety of our Christian life is not either affliction or joy. But I got news for you today. Be prepared for your Christian life to be an experience of joy through affliction. After all, that's what the apostle has said in chapter 1. All of the affliction resulted in the joy of comfort. 
All of his labors, all of his ministry, ministerial labors and hardships was for the purpose of the Corinthians' joy. Chapter 1, verse 24. But here, he talks again about this delicate balance between joy and affliction, or joy through affliction. And there are two things about the nature of the ministry and trials. Number one, the very first thing is the certainty of trials in the gospel, in the ministry, and by extension in our Christian lives. It is absolutely certain, as Jesus taught, that trials and tribulations are promised for you. First Peter makes a great, uh, gives us a great teaching and theology on the fact that, as a matter of fact, trials are what God has determined for you, predestined for you, okay? God has a certain amount of trials that He has, that he has designed and fashioned just for you. I know that doesn't sound like good news, but it is if you know who it is who has designed the trial. Because he has not just designed the overall trial, he's designed the beginning of the trial, the, begin, the, the middle of the trial, and the end of the trial. God, in other words, is sovereign over all of your afflictions, all of your sorrow, all of your trial, all of your suffering. And I think that is what gave the Apostle Paul the fuel to go on, knowing who it was that was sovereign over his trials, knowing that he did not have to take upon as many of the Stoic philosophers of his day a fatalistic view of life, that things just happen because they happen, right? Why did, tw- why did 12 people lose their lives in Colorado this week? Just because those kinds of things happen. Absolutely not. No. God has a perfect purpose in everything that happens in this world. Everything. I agree with the confessions that say that God has ordained everything whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing escapes His notice or His control. God is in control of all these things, brothers and sisters. God is in control of our suffering. God is in control of our triumph. God is in control of our ministry's failure and success. God is in control of all of those things, and the Apostle Paul simply lived his life yielded to the sovereignty of God, knowing to who it was that he had entrusted himself. As Peter says, knowing that you can entrust yourself to a faithful creator, I really don't know how else you get along in life. If you don't entrust your trials to a faithful, sovereign creator, it would be utter despair to think that trials happen for no reason. It would be utter despair just to think that your trials had just come upon you because of karma. It would, be, it would be utter despair just to think that there's no one ultimately in control and that the devil has just as much power as God or that chance is just as much of a powerful force as God's providence. No, my friends, this universe belongs to God. Every square inch of it is under His dominion. Our God is sovereign, and that is meant not to trouble you, not to, com- not to complicate you, but to encourage you and to strengthen you. That he's got a, uh, He has a purpose in all of it. You see Paul going from Troas and then going ultimately to Macedonia. But guess what? It wasn't as if by leaving Troas and going to Macedonia, the Apostle Paul was finally going to get relief for his trial. 
No, if you look over at chapter at 2 Corinthians 7, 4, as a matter of fact, Macedonia was just another occasion for more trials. Again, this is the way the gospel is accomplished. This is the way the gospel was furthered. This is the way ministry is. This is the way the Christian life is. 2 Corinthians 7, 4 says, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with all comfort. I'm overflowing with joy. In all of our affliction, there that def- difficult, that little bal- that uh, specific balance there as well. But look at verse five. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh finally had rest. No, that's not what he says. He says our flesh had no rest, and there the word sarks is synonymous to his overall body, his whole life, his whole makeup, his human, his his entire being had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side. Look at, the all, look at the exhaustive language he uses here. Conflicts without and fears within. As a matter of fact, God had told Paul long ago that no matter what city he went to, he could be certain of this, that he would encounter trial after trial after trial. You know, I was at the bookstore uh, yesterday looking in the ministry section of the of, the, of uh, the bookstore talking about how to manage a church, how to do successful ministry. And I was just amazed at just the titles of these ministry books and, 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 and opening up the contents of many of these books and how many of those books were dedicated to having a, a, a easy ministry. And that's the best way I could sum it up, a painless ministry. This is what you can do to avoid pain in the ministry. But brothers and sisters, listen, there is no way to avoid pain in the ministry because ministry involves pain. It's inescapable. Listen to Acts chapter 20, verse 22. He says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, this is Acts 20, verse 22, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. How do you advance the gospel in a Muslim country? By, willing, by being willing to go even if you don't know what's going to happen to you there. It's not safe, in other words, Paul's saying. And we know that because of the next verse. He's not just saying, we just don't know what kind of experience it'll be. No, no, no. He's definitely talking about having great trepidation that his life, his, his very life is in danger. Look at verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Isn't that amazing? No matter what city the Apostle Paul went to, listen, bonds and afflictions awaited him there. It was certain that there would be trials, but none of that deterred him. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, again, he gives us this elaborate description of his afflictions in verse 11 saying, so that we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. We already saw in chapter 1 that he was in a position there in his Asiatic affliction, whatever it may have been, where he said he was, he was He was pushed to the brink, he said. He said, we couldn't even bear it. He said, the sentence of death was over us. Was over us. Sometimes I fear, brothers and sisters, in the evangelical church today, that we have become so obsessed with our comfort, so obsessed with our safety and our security, because after all, church should be just like the American dream, right? No, that's not true. No. 
Sometimes God may call you by His sovereign call and His sovereign will to go into the hard places of the world. But we know that even in our own lives. I don't want to minimize the trials of our own Christian experience here and now. You don't need to go to the bush to, in the jungles of Africa to have trials, right? Just look back on the last six days. You know, a week is amazing what can happen in a week, right? You can throw your life away in a week. You can destroy your marriage in one week. You can ruin your ministry in one week. Your whole direction in life can change in a week. You can get bad news from the doctors, from the workplace, from school, from the theater in Colorado. You just don't know what can happen in a week. Brothers and sisters, listen, this is why I'm so glad, I'm so blessed that much of the Bible is written in such a way as to prepare you and I to suffer because we're going to suffer as much as we don't like it, as much as we want to try to numb ourselves through entertainment, as much as we want to numb ourselves through alcohol or through substance abuse, getting high or playing video games until you're ready to blow your brains out, you know? It's amazing what we'll do to subside reality in our own lives and minds. But brothers and sisters, the truth is, is that we need to go no further than the Apostle Paul. But even further than that, let me just, I just said we need to go no further, and here I am taking you further. But Jesus, I think, was the greatest source and example for endurance under trial. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. He says, For you have been called for this very purpose, that is, suffering. Isn't that amazing? Wow, you're not going to hear that from a lot of pulpits today in the church. You've been called to be a Christian for this very reason, that you will suffer. You can't grow a big church on that, right? I'm surprised there's the 50, 60, 70 people here today preaching that. Because nobody wants to hear that in a world that is so incredibly good, expert, as a matter of fact, at extinguishing all signs of trouble and inconvenience. And man, people just want to have a good time. It's what you hear out at Southlake when you go witnessing and you preach to these young people and say, I've had people tell me, look, man, I'm just here trying to have a good time. Don't bug me with reality right now <laughs> about my sin and judgment and hell. Peter goes on and he says, look, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Amazing. Christ left us an example, brothers and sisters, to follow in His steps. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He, did, he uttered no threats. But He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. The key to that passage, if you're there, 1 Peter 2, 22, the key to that text is the phrase, who committed no sin. This is the holy Son of God who had done no evil, no sin against anyone ever in the entirety of His life. Therefore, giving Him the right 
of anyone else to judge somebody, giving him the right to, to reproach, giving him the right to revile, giving him the right to threat or to threaten somebody, but he didn't. He entrusted himself to the sovereignty of God, and so did Paul. Not just the certainty of trials in the gospel, but also then the complexity. The complexity, and I say that because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, again, listen to the wording here. He says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel, and then there's a little parenthetical note here, okay? This is kind of a parenthesis. Verse 13 kind of follows up by saying, I had no rest. So I did these travels, and guess what? I had no rest. But what's amazing to me is what he says in between there. He says, and when a door was opened to me in the Lord, or open for me. Isn't that amazing? That in the midst of his unrest, in the midst of his turmoil, there was what he will call in other places an effective door for ministry open for him. Which leads me to conclude the two are not antithetical. You can have unrest and you can have success in ministry. As a matter of fact, I would probably argue further that it actually works this way. When you have success, you better be ready for the test. Right? New level, new devil. Doesn't fail. And every time we prosper, I've had Christians tell me, I had one one person tell me once, this is why I don't do godly things. Because of things like this that happen. Every time I try to seek the Lord or every time I try to press into the things of God, trials come into my life. Of course trials come into your life. Do you think the devil is just going to sit by, idly by, watching you prosper in your soul and in your spirit to live a godly life and to preach the gospel and to glorify God? He's just sitting back like your cosmic cheerleader? Of course not. Satan is infuriated with your sanctification because you are taking more and more and more of the image of God upon yourself and you are resembling more and more and more the image of Christ, the very image that he detests. So the more you are conformed into the image of God, the more opposition to that image you should expect. And anything that is contributing to you growing more into that image, you should expect booby traps everywhere. You should expect that Satan will hinder you from coming to church. You should expect that Satan will hinder you from praying with your spouse. You should expect that Satan will hinder you from discipling your children. You should expect that Satan shall hinder you from being evangelistic in your life. You should expect that Satan will hinder your reading, right? Oh, we can read the latest headlines on the news. We can go to work and read these complicated manuals. We can, you know, we can read newspapers. We can read magazines that we like. We can read technical, you know, technical uh, instructions on how to put together your sound equipment or how to play this video game. And we can text 100 miles an hour. But when it comes to simply quieting down and imbibing the very Word of God, we find that we are so easily overcome with a mysterious slumber, a slothfulness that comes over us. And I would submit to you that that is an obstacle from the enemy. That is a trap. 
That is one of his schemes, one of his traps, his, one of his ways to entangle you and trip you up so that when you want to pray with your spouse, that's right when you start getting sleepy. He's not dumb. He knows his prey really well. He knows you sometimes better than you know yourself. He knows where to set the trap. He knows when to pull it. He knows which one you like. He knows exactly how to customize it just for you. But my friends, the complexity and the certainty of trials should not keep us in the dirt. Oh, this is... This to me was ministering so much, brothers and sisters, because I, just like you, am so easily downcast. I, just like you, am so easily discouraged. Easily discouraged in the ministry. Easily discouraged in my, my lack of understanding divine things. My, my, my discouragement at, in my home life, in my personal life, in my ministry life. You name it, I get, I get discouraged just as much as any of you, maybe even more. But... Regardless of how many failures the Apostle Paul saw in the church that did not keep him from moving on. He didn't fall into the all-too-easy attitude of Christianity today, which is to be utterly in despair. Something goes wrong, and people are tempted to just throw in the towel. I want to read to you something that I found from John Piper as I was reading And I was thinking at this very moment, I need something that will really illustrate what I'm trying to say. So I looked over in my shelf, I grabbed the book, and I I promise you I wasn't trying to play uh, Bible roulette or book roulette, but it opened right to the place that I needed to read. Thank you, Lord, because my time was short, my study time. It is in a book that uh, John Piper wrote called The Roots of Endurance, and it's a biography on the lives of several uh, eminent Puritan uh, saints of the past, uh, John Newton, Charles Simeon, and, uh, oh, what's the other one? Um, William Wilberforce. And Piper talking about Charles Simeon, a man who suffered very greatly in the ministry, who pastored a church that did not like him for decades, a church that actually really hated him, just didn't like him as a person, whatever. Wow. I just think I'm so made me so grateful for all of you guys because I know how much you guys like me. But but really, uh, Charles Simeon is just legendary for his perseverance in the ministry of saying, you know what? I'm going to preach. I don't care how many people out there like me or don't like me. I'm going to stand here and be faithful to the mysteries of God and be a faithful steward. And it led to Piper talking about what he called an emotionally fragile society. He says. One of the pervasing great measures of our, t- uh, excuse me, oh, I read that wrong. One of the pervasing marks of our times is emotional fragility. He says, it hangs in the air that we breathe. We are easily hurt. We pout and we mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. And our commitment to the church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened, and it seems that we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the faith, in the face of criticism and opposition. He says, we are surrounded by and 
we are a part of a society of emotionally fragile quitters. That's right. That's true. We are in a society that is so quick to throw in the towel. But brothers and sisters, if we look to Paul's example, my prayer is that if we understand the certainty and the complexity of the Christian life and ministry and preaching the gospel and all of these things, that we will have enough of an example to go on looking past the trials to the triumphs. Now let's get to the triumph. Verse 14. So not only the trials of the gospel or gospel ministry, but also now the triumphs of gospel ministry. Verse 12, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. In every place. To show us that Paul did not in fact despair He quickly moves to view the success of ministry and what it really looks like because I think a lot of people are very disenchanted into what success in ministry really is, what it really is. He had a perspective, a proper perspective of two things that are very important. Number one, ministry, of course. Number two, he had a proper perspective of himself. He had a proper perspective of his own life as a believer. And it is in line or it is in league with the teaching of Jesus when he said, if you love your life, you will lose it. If you love your life, you will lose it. But if you hate your life in this world for my sake, you shall keep it for eternal life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says Back in Acts chapter 20, after talking about all of these trials and all these dangers, and Paul, don't you know that it's dangerous if you go over there, you could die? And this is what he says. He says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That was, if I can give you a secret, because you know a lot of people say there are no secrets to the Christian life, but this is a big one though. This is a clue at least, right? The clue is have a proper perspective of yourself to say, this is not my life. I, I, don't, I don't hold this life dear to myself. I'm not trying to barricade myself under every security blanket that I can find so that ultimately I'll be like those you know, doomsday preppers. They dig like... 30, 40 feet underground, and they're preparing for the end? That's not what God wants for Christians. God wants us out there preaching to the end. He doesn't want us hiding in holes, okay, like gophers or something. (laughs) He wants us out there. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 says, Christ will even now, as always, just the the absolute unflinching resolution of the Apostle Paul. As always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, and I hope for you and us, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And why is dying gain? Because dying gain as Spurgeon has said so eloquently, just means less of this world and more of heaven. 
That's why it's gain. Less of this earth, less of this sin-laden world, less of the tragedies like Colorado, less of the senseless, brutal, demonic evil that you see on the news all the time now. Less of all of that, less of the futility of the world and the futility of all of the nations of the world, less of the sin in your own life, of the corruption and the pollution, the indwelling sin in your life, less of all of that and more of Him, more of Christ. No wonder the Puritans called that the beatific vision when we finally see it and it's all over. Oh, I pray that you long for heaven. You long for it. You long for it. I'll never forget when John MacArthur said one, one time he was laying in the hospital and there was, a, there was a surgery they had to perform on him that could have ended his life. Said, the doctor said 50-50. <laughs> How about that, huh? You're sitting there in the hospital bed and the doctor says, look, 50-50. You might make it out of this room today. You might not. So, John, can I call him John? Is that okay? John MacArthur gathered his whole family around him in that room, said his goodbyes to his wife, to his children, to his grandchildren, brothers, sisters, everybody. Well, obviously John MacArthur is still with us. He made it. And what hit me like a ton of bricks is when he said, when I came out of it and they told me, you're okay, he said, I was a little bit disappointed. And I pray that that would be our heart, that we would long for heaven in that way, that we would not so love our lives unto death. Brothers and sisters, that is what Revelation calls the coward, the person that loves their life to the death and is unwilling to lose it for Jesus Christ. Now, let's move on to this passage because here there is another aspect of ministry and what it's like. What is proper ministry? What does it mean to have real success in the ministry? I love Paul because Paul is such an example to me. I'll be honest with you. I don't need to go to the store and pile up all these books on how to have a successful ministry and how to have good, a successful church and how to grow a big church because guess what? You don't find any of that with Paul. You will hear nothing with Paul on how to get people in the doors of your church. You'll hear nothing from Paul about how to grow your church. You will hear nothing from Paul about, about altar calls. You'll hear nothing from the Apostle Paul uh, of how to use worldly amusements to draw in the masses. You will hear none of it. What you hear from Paul, from Paul is an admonition to ministers to stay faithful to the gospel. That's it. Preach the word, Timothy. Titus, preach, rebuke, admonish. And guess what? Don't let anybody disregard you. Don't let anybody disregard your preaching. Don't let anybody disregard your instruction. Don't let anybody disregard your authority. He doesn't tell them, look, this is how you can grow big numbers and this is how your tithes can go up and, you know, you start online giving and everything else and it'll be just so easy Oh, my friends, I shirk away from stuff like that. Uh, For better or for worse, brothers and sisters, I am just going to allow God to do the work of growing this church, okay? Sorry if I won't spend $10,000 to put mailers in envelopes and send them all across Frisco with nice, huge graphics 
okay? Unless somebody wants to donate that kind of thing. Look, I'll, I'll let the Lord lead you, okay? <laughs> I don't want to overstate myself. I do a lot of, I do a lot of overstating up here, a lot of gen- gross generalization. But you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Okay. The amazing thing is that for Paul, he saw that through the pain, through the trials, nonetheless, there was the triumph. He says, thanks be to God, the very first Thanksgiving of the letter, by the way, who always, wait a minute, but what about those times of despair? What about the time, Paul, when you were in a Roman prison? What about the time where you had to stand before Festus and Agrippa? What about the time where you were stoned by the Jews and shipwrecked on Malta? What about those times? No, no, no. Always. It doesn't matter what the external is telling you. By virtue of your union with Christ, God is always leading you in triumph. Amazing. Union with Christ is the key to ministry, just like it is the key to the Christian life. Because you are inseparable from Jesus Christ, you will be kept to the very end. And because of our union with Christ, God will triumph through us. Look at that little phrase who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So specific, right? So almost like a ping pong ball. You've got to follow it around. But that's exactly what it is. If you miss those little phrases, in Christ, that modifies that whole clause, that whole section is modified by this little prepositional phrase, in Christ, which doesn't mean you're like in His body or in His skin, No, it's language of union with Christ. Your mystical, positional, spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Your togetherness with Jesus Christ. You cannot be lost because you're part of His body. And because you are part of Him, where He triumphs, you triumph. But how does He triumph? I'll show you. He triumphs this way. By manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. This was an amazing thing for the Corinthians to hear. Let me read you one thing here on the background of where all of this is probably coming from. For Paul to say this, he leads us in triumph. Some of your translations might actually translate it translated as he leads us in triumphal procession. What he's probably referring to is the some 350 different times in the old Greco-Roman world where writers of the ancient world talked about what was known as these Roman triumphs, these Roman processions. They were like parades. And what were they for? They were to show Roman victory. Let me read you this. Listen. This is Murray Harris's commentary speaking about this pageant. He says, At the head of the procession came the magistrates and the senate, followed by trumpeteers and some spoils of war, such as vessels of gold or beaks of ships. Then came the flute players, ahead of the white oxen destined to be sacrificed in the temples, along with some representative captives from the conquered territory, including such dignitaries as the king, driven in chains in front of the ordinate chariot of the general. That's a chariot that was all decked out. And he says, which is called the triumphator, the one honored in the triumph who wore the garb of Jupiter and carried a scepter in his left hand and a slave held a crown over his head. The victorious soldier followed, shouting, Hail, triumphant one! 
As the procession ascended to the Capitol Hill, some of the leading captives, usually royal figures or the tallest and strongest of the conquered warriors, were taken aside into the adjoining prisons and executed. Sacrifices were offered up upon the arrival at the Temple of Jupiter. These are the types of triumphal processions that the Corinthians were used to seeing. A conqueror, a victor, riding along in his chariot in triumph with all of his booty behind him and all of the captives in front of him, kings and dignitaries and chains off into the prisons to be slaughtered, oxen into the temples to be sacrificed, and, as John MacArthur points out, flower garlands, incense burning everywhere so that the fragrance of the victory filled the entire city. That's exactly what Paul is trying to paint in their mind, that Christ is the triumphant one, that God has triumphed, and we join in that triumph because of our union with Christ. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, in all of these things, talking about his trials, whether marital, familial, cultural, financial, in all of these things, brothers and sisters, we overwhelmingly triumph or conquer through Him who loves us. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven, He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been united, brothers and sisters, to a conqueror. We cannot lose you cannot, what do you do with somebody who has this perspective? You can't kill him. If you kill him, he'll just multiply. Because somebody will see his sacrifice. Somebody will see the gospel in that. Somebody will see the witness of that. Like Polycarp burned at the stake in a Roman Colosseum. 80, 90 years old. And people are watching this old man lift his hands up to heaven and worship and praise God as his body is being lit on fire and people are so overcome by his testimony that they fall to their knees in repentance and they believe because of his witness. That is triumph. That is triumph. We are conquered. We are conquering with Christ and as many have sort of pointed out, there might be a dual aspect to this meaning. We are also conquered by Christ, and there is a twist there. Because in the triumphal processions, those who had been taken captive would hurl accusations at the victor, would despise the conquering hero. But we don't, brothers and sisters. We have become his possession. We are slaves of God. But there is not one insult coming from our lips. Instead, we offer up praise. And we praise Him because He has chosen to use us so that the knowledge of Him, that is Christ, I think that's the nearest antecedent. I know in your Bibles you might be confused. Who is the Him? I think it's Christ. In every place we are manifesting and spreading the knowledge of Him. And that, Lord willing, will be the body of our subject next week. We will look at what it means to be this sweet fragrance, this aroma, to be this sort of reminder to everyone in every place of the knowledge of Him. That was Paul's passion. I love it. This is passage like... 
every other thing that the Apostle Paul writes is so evangelistic, is so filled with a, a, a missions-minded uh, motive and uh, teaching and instruction. And it just it shows us Paul's resolve and it shows us his commission. And I think right here we have such amazing fuel for not just ministry, but the commission, the great commission, to know that we can't fail because we're in Christ. And as long as the knowledge of Him is going out through us, just like it says, then we are conquering. That is evidence that God is victorious through our efforts. No matter how many, no matter how many people insult you, no matter how many people take your trash, like happened this past week, somebody took, I think it was Chris's tr- uh, track, came up to him, shredded it, and threw it in the trash. And that God calls victory. Victory. He is triumphing none the less. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this great and glorious gospel that we have. Father, it's not too often that we hear that we can't lose. But Lord, that's not just a cliche for believers. That is absolute gospel truth. We can't lose. We are united to a conqueror. We're united to Your victory. We're united to your cause because of your work of uniting us to your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, please help us to be those that persevere through our trials, knowing that trials are certain, and even though they are complex, help us, Lord, to understand that regardless and in the face of all of those trials and of all of that opposition, it doesn't matter because we will ultimately and already partially are triumphing with Christ. Father, please remind these dear people of that during the week. When the onslaughts of the devil come, when the discouragement and the depression sets in and there seems to be no one to comfort, there seems to be no word that can lift the darkness Encourage our hearts by these great and glorious truths about our victory in Jesus Christ. Amen.